you are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Chasers of light, to the purveyors of pictures, to all of you listening from around the world, this is the F11 Photography Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Deal, along with your other host, Mr. Brandon Gorey. How are we doing, everyone, today? Welcome back to the F11 Photography Podcast. What have you been up to, dude? Well, I've been playing around with my new Z8. And, uh, well, recently I did a shoot yesterday, and I got a lesson on using the right memory card for your shoots. So, uh, long story short, uh, it's painful to say, it's painful for me to say, but without really shooting more than 30 seconds of video um, and just capturing photos in about 95-degree weather yesterday... Uh, with the LCD screen on, the Nikon Z8 was giving me a hot card warning. So, on my drive home from the lake, which was 45 minutes, I got into some YouTube videos about hot cards. And so, just for anyone out there, if you're buying a very high-performance camera, uh, make sure to do your due diligence and grab cards that don't go up to 80 degrees, I think, Celsius. It was ridiculous. So, I grabbed the SanDisk 256 gigabyte, and I went and looked at the hot CF card chart, which is there's this ubiquitous single chart from about five years ago that was made by a random forum user that everyone swears by that gives you the average running temperatures of the different CF cards on the market. SanDisk and Lexar get really, really, really hot. So I learned not to buy those cards. Uh, Apparently Delkin runs a lot cooler for all those intended purposes. So I will be looking into that. Interesting, as somebody who owns nothing but SanDisk and Lexar, that's good news. Now, we're going to do a correction real quick, because on your Nikon Z8 episode, you made the claim that the FX3 from Sony, I believe that's what you shoot on for your other job, uh, does not have the border around it for the red uh, recording tally light. It actually does. A gentleman from the UK wrote in, I don't have his information yes, in front yes. of me. Let me. Let me cut you off right there, because I don't shoot on the FX3. I shoot on the A7S II. And I remember very specifically saying that it does have the border, because I shot with it. Uh, the other day, and it also has a red flashing light when it's recording. So I don't know what that was about. Uh, you probably misspoke. So anyway, uh, I had an interesting weekend. So my wife and her friend got tickets to go see Beyonce in Houston. Uh, and this was back in February. And I was like, cool, I'll watch the kids and it'll be fun. Uh, well, about a week ago, her friend could not make it to go see Beyonce. And so she's like, do you want to go to Houston with me to see Beyonce? And if you listen to this pod, you know that I listen to esoteric underground music and I'm not really a pop music guy. But then there's another part of me that's like, well, you know, I get to go on a date with my wife, go out to Houston for the weekend. And I mean, come on, let's be honest. It's a multi-million dollar production. So if you go to a Beyonce concert and don't have a good time, it's your fault. And so I I was like, you know what? I'll I'll go see Beyonce. Sure. I mean, she's outside of maybe Taylor Swift. She's the largest artist in the world. You know, biggest artist, biggest production budget and all that. She has played the Super Bowl halftime show. So I'm like, okay. 
So anyway, I went and um, it was it was interesting. So uh, demographics. Uh, the, I, I am a straight white male, and I represented maybe three percent of the population there. Uh, yeah, it was an intersection of black women and gay men. Uh, they took up about eighty percent. Uh, straight white males, I'm going to go with 3%. Uh, straight uh, African-American, I'm going to go with 7 so that'll get us a 10 So the then the other 10% was like white women. But it was like, it was, it was cool. I loved, I loved it. It was awesome. Everybody had a great time. Uh, you know, I, I was like, cool, this is a great cap to a weekend. Uh, Beyonce killed it, even though I'm not a, a huge fan of her music. Uh, just by existing over the last 20 years, I knew at least half the songs anyway, because that's how pop music works. You can't escape it no matter where you go. So I had a good time. I was like, wow, what a, what a great cap to a weekend. It was cool. Uh, drove home yesterday, watched my Cowboys lose, but you know, whatever that's, that's, that's normal. They'll always let you down. As a matter of fact, you should have the Cowboys be your pallbearers at your funeral so they can let you down one last time. Hey. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I got home last night. Uh, I was like, cool. I was waiting for the Austin FC match to start. And it's like, oh, we have some weather coming in. You know, we have some hail coming down. And I'm like, oh, cool. Well, I look at the weather radar and I was like, oh, it looks like it looks like this hail is coming toward my house. But it looked like it was passing northeast of us. And so I was like, all right, cool. Well, I'll be cool. Whatever. I uh, open up my sparkling water and I take a sip and I just hear boom. Dum, dum, like all this slamming uh, on my house. How, how big was the hill? Grapefruit size. God. And I did the math on it because you can look it up. Like the terminal velocity of how fast it was hitting my house was about 100 miles an hour. So if you can imagine something that is thick, uh, you know, kind of has the consistency of a marble, you know, as far as it, how hard it is. And it's hitting your house at 100 miles an hour. So what happened was we heard these the, this loud thump and crashing and all that. And it was like someone was slowly breaking into our windows with a crowbar. So not only were the windows exploding, but the actual blinds were like exploding. Like someone was hitting them with a bullet. And, uh, you know, we're just, we kind of like hit instinctual, like, hey, where will we go if there was a tornado? Let's go to the center of the house because things were exploding um, through the windows and the windows were just blowing up everywhere and water was coming in. Did you have any wine? Uh, I didn't have the foresight to go open up a bottle of fucking wine while the windows are exploding. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so anyway, this is all happening. Remember I had sparkly water though. So I was still, I was still high class and, um, Good. everything's blowing up. And yeah, so the, the end result is we lost three windows, like just blown up. The blinds blew up. And then if you look at the side of my house, I have vinyl siding. It looks like somebody took a 50 caliber and just shot up the side of my house. So I'm going to, I'm going to show Brandon the side of my house. You can see those black holes all over the vinyl siding. It just looks like somebody shot it up with oh a fucking my, machine gun. It looks like someone yella imshied your house, my dude. Yeah, and uh, this is going to be one of the last podcasts where I describe something to you because moving forward, we're actually going to uh, start being on YouTube. So if you want to follow us along on there, uh, we have a YouTube channel. I've just been lazy and not been uploading because I don't want to upload just audio and then have a picture of our ugly mugs. <laughs> But going back to it, so uh, yeah, just have a photo of like some anime girl with big tits. Yeah, sure. <laughs> whatever, whatever keeps people on. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah. So I'm I've got thousands and thousands of dollars of damage to my house. I got. I mean, I, I you know we recently talked about how I bought a new car. Thankfully, the windows are fine. 
but there's uh, there's all sorts of body damage on it. So it's it's going to be a fun day around the deal household. But let's talk about today's sponsor. Today's sponsor is Gamut. So if you are looking for a LUT or a lookup table, and you're kind of you find yourself in a in a rut, get yourself a LUT. That's my new uh, thing. They need to start paying me for that tagline, by the way. Uh, but they just came out with some new LUTs that I'm trying out. Uh, there's a uh, there's a cool LUT where it really boosts the blues up, and then they have a new film LUT that looks really nice, uh, gorgeous. They have it for all the different systems. It's nine new LUTs that they're coming out with, and uh, they're they make LUTs for every single format except Fuji. But I just got word from them that they are now making a LUT for the Fuji uh, F log, so S log, F log, uh, N log, whatever uh, C log. They're doing they do all of it. So they're doing 15% off your uh, first purchase. So go check out a link in the description of this podcast and you can go uh, get 15% off your LUT. They have creative LUTs, they have base LUTs. Uh, so if you want to do more creative cinematography type stuff, you do weddings, they have all of that. But that's our sponsor today. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about uh, advice we wish we'd given ourselves, a, a bad advice you've made, mistakes you've made. Uh, we're just going to air it all out. And then we're going to talk about maybe embarrassing stories that have happened to us in the photography world. So uh, I'm going to start off by something that we have talked about on this podcast, uh, a mistake, which is that you have to niche. I'm not I'm not a fan of like, I, I totally understand that you have to establish yourself as an expert in a particular area. But if your goal is to be a complete photographer, should you not learn more than maybe one style of photography or specialize in one style of photography? What do you think about that, Brandon? I think I think forcing yourself to niche does have its merits. I will say that. But you don't like it's it's not ever it's it's not about that. Like you want to explore photography, you want to learn a lot of photography, you want to hone your skills in a number of different things because um Look, if you want to be a master at something, like you want to be the wedding photographer, you want to be the car photographer, fair enough. You know, you're competing with the 1% in the world or the, maybe even the 03 in the world. But general photography, taking good photos, taking accurate, great color, accurate and well-graded, well-edited, well-shot, well-lit photos, you can do that uh, in, in multiple disciplines. In fact, a lot of photographers I know who are making... Um, making good money from it and who are booking clients, they don't just focus on one thing. They, they, it's usually two or three things that they can do um, pretty well and uh, repeat very successfully. Well, if you like to make money, it's, you know, it's good to, you know, it's good to be an established expert at something, but on any given Saturday, if someone's like, Hey, Kevin, can you second shoot a wedding? And maybe I need a few thousand dollars or whatever, or, you know, at least a couple thousand dollars. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, it's good to, it's good to have other skills. And so, uh, I reject that you should just niche. You should, you should have a complete portfolio. Uh, it's okay to be an established expert in your area, but yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the things let's move on to the next one. Um, turning around edits quickly. I think that, uh, I think that that's dangerous. I don't like turning around edits quickly because I find that if I stand back and I look at it with a fresh set of eyes, I can actually edit super fast and uh, execute what I meant to execute in the first place. And I don't think that uh, by turning your edits around the same day you shoot things that you've taken enough time to really sit back and and, and uh, look at your work. Now, there if if you you know if you want a tip to turn edits around quicker, which is just get things right at the camera. Like get as much right at the camera as you can. So when it becomes time to edit, 
you can turn it around faster. But the whole, oh, I'm just going to, you know, if you're, if you're the type of person who, who just takes pictures and doesn't get anything right at the camera and you, you just do the edits on the back end and you try to turn around quickly, you're going to miss something. There, there are things that by, by not taking your time, you will fail to achieve. I mean, you're going to miss stuff even when you do take your time. That It's just inevitable. You're going to miss something. And, and so it's always good to just take your time, take a breather, especially on a collaborative shoot. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like if it's a paid thing and you've got to like hit your marks, fair enough. But if it's a collaborative shoot, take your time, get the shots you want to get and nail the idea that you came out to nail. Absolutely. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about uh, beating people on price. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. One of my uh, biggest pet peeves, one of the things that absolutely destroys our industry and makes other photographers pissed off at you is when you decide that I'm going to go beat people on price because most of the time you don't put any thought into it. Uh, so we, we discussed in our, in our episode of how to price your photography, which I'll put a link in the description of this podcast. Uh, but if you haven't checked that episode out and you want to hear a more in-depth discussion on what we're about to talk about, go check out that episode. But what people tend to do is when they go shop around or, you know, people are like, oh, I got to figure out how much to charge my photography and I don't know what to charge. They make the stupid mistake of they go find their competitor's site and then let's just, I'm just going to throw an arbitrary number out. Let's say that somebody says, I will charge $500 to take you out into a field and shoot your family. Not, not with a gun, but with a, with a, with a camera. Uh, and, and like, cool, I'm going to do it for 350. Like, okay, well, what, how did you come up with that price? You came up with that price because you said, I'm going to undercut this other person, but you didn't take into account that, Hey, the 350 has to pay for my retirement. It has to pay my mortgage. It has to pay for my kids, uh, college. And, you know, you're not, you're not actually like putting, you're not plugging anything in to come up with that number. You literally pulled it out of your ass. You just undercut somebody. And it's a massive disservice to the industry because what happens is, is we drive the price down and then nobody can make money. And you're devaluing yourself and you're taking money out of your own pocket in the process. And it's just stupid. You're creating a market that is fucking terrible for it's everybody. A, it's a lose-lose situation. You get like you don't get anything out of it. Your your clientele will tell everyone that's your price, it's a lower price. You're underselling yourself. You're creating a strategy for yourself where it's based on other people's prices. You're bringing the market down as Kevin said. You're creating enemies and ultimately you're making hobby not a career choice. You're making it a quick buck choice. Yeah, it's like we uh, we talked about I don't remember which episode it was, but basically what you're doing is at the end of the day you are training clients to hire people who can't afford to pay their bills. That's, that's what you're doing. You're creating an industry of people who can't afford to pay their bills because you made the stupid decision of, I'm not going to plug in my numbers to anything relevant to my life, my bills, my expenses or anything. I'm just going to throw it, pull this number out of my ass and it's going to be lower than somebody who may or may not have done the plug in themselves. Maybe the person that you're undercutting also undercut somebody else who undercut somebody else, who undercut somebody else. And then you're creating a market of people who might only pay you 350 when you could have created a market of people who paid you 750. But because you decided to take the, I'm the, you know, it's always the person also who does the quick edits. It's the same person who does the, the, the low price. So take the last two uh, thing, pieces of advice we gave you and don't be that fucking person. <laughs> yeah, something, yeah, I, well said. You know, something that I've also learned and that I would tell myself not to do um, that drives me crazy is, not shooting for yourself, but 
shooting for the external, shooting for the invisible audience that doesn't exist, shooting for, you know, Instagram, shooting for anyone else but yourself. Um, I know it's, I know it's very tempting because, you know, we've uh, grown up in a world of social points and social credit. I have at least, I remember Instagram came out when I was about 11, 12 years old and it was just, that's what it was, you know, it was a big deal. And um, it's very easy to get stuck in the habit of, of creating photos and creating work that will be um, admired uh, by others as opposed to yourself. And it's a very easy world to get stuck in. Um, it hurts your photography, it hurts your creative development. You're not actually developing yourself as a photographer when you do this. You're not finding your editing style and you're not paying attention to what you like. And then ultimately you're going to burn out. This is not a sustainable way to create images. It's a way to, to become a business. It's a, it's a great way to market yourself, uh, business first, photography second. Um, but if you're truly enjoying the craft and you truly do enjoy using a camera to take photos, uh, photography should be something where you, you're reaching inside or you're inspired by something and you put your spin on it. But ultimately, your photography should be coming from you because if it's not, it shows. And let me tell you, Instagram and, and social media has gotten to a point today where you're not going to copy someone else's work and no one's going to notice because we see it all so often. 100%. And also on the subject that I was talking about with the money thing, don't be the person who does mini sessions. It's like I have five slots available in a two hour set in a two hour uh, window and I'm going to do like $30, three edits for families or whatever that drives the market down. And just, just don't, don't do that. You will not become a professional in the sense that you will not be able to fucking eat. Just don't be that person. Um, another one, you have to shoot manual to be a pro. You have to shoot manual. Uh, have Have you ever looked at somebody's picture and discovered whether or not they were in aperture priority, shutter priority, uh, automatic mode, or manual? Have you ever Have you ever been able to decipher that by looking at any picture in your entire life? To be, well, here's the thing: is I I've shot in man or non manual. I've shot in program a few times on on cameras, and it usually overexposes the photo. Or it shoots it in a way that I don't like because I think sensors have gotten technologically to a point now where if we want to have a more flat image and, and more color grading with like silhouette shots or like, you know, uh, split face shadow shots, like we can shoot a little underexposed to bring out the color. Cause like we do have the technology to do that. And if we shoot an auto, then it's going to balance the photo for the, for, you know, the midtones, which will oftentimes blow it out. I don't know if you've had the same experience. I mean, an older cameras I did, but now you can get one or two stops over and you can pull all that back. So I, I just, I, I, you know, there's the, these people out there who hold this attitude that you have to be in manual all the time. Now I do shoot manual myself. I almost always shoot manual, but you know, when I don't shoot in manual, when I know I'm doing something fast, I'll put it in shutter priority and I'll make sure that my shutter speed is over one, one thousandth, one, two thousandth of a second. And then I'll just let the camera decide the aperture because I don't have time to give a shit. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to freeze action. I'm really fixated on that. I will, I will throw it into shutter priority. Now I don't shoot a lot of sports. Yeah, but I do find myself in situations sometimes where I need to capture something fast, whatever a model's jumping in the air or something, and I don't have a flash and I can't freeze, freeze the action that way. Yeah. Uh, ass assuming you're doing like risk assessment for like, okay, like I know in the back of my head that this camera's not going to crank ISO to an unreasonable level for that camera model. Like, you know, you've got that in the back of your head. You know that like, okay, if I go to 1,000th of a shutter speed, I know that the, the equal ISO to keep this metered is going to be somewhere completely reasonable and editable. Yeah, but and it all it's also it's also genre dependent. If I were a sports photographer or a bird photographer, I would shoot in shutter priority all the time. 
and then, you know, uh, maybe if I were a street photographer, I would shoot an aperture priority all the time because maybe I want to keep my depth of field, you know, F8, F11 all the time, but then let the ISO and the shutter speed adjust based off of the changing situation in front of me. And so, you know, you hear these people talk about how, oh, you, you're not a pro if you haven't learned to shoot manual. I mean, it is something that if you want to become a complete photographer, you should learn to shoot manual because there are situations where manual is better uh, if you want to get it right at the camera, which I harp on all the time. But that whole, uh, that whole like idea that you have to shoot manual, like I just, I don't, I don't buy into it. And speaking of manual, let's talk about manuals. The people out there who say, uh, you know, read the fucking manual. You know, like anytime you're in a forum and somebody has a, a technical question about a camera and someone's like, you know, RFM, uh, uh, read the fucking manual. That's what, that's what they respond with. And my pushback on that is, oh, yes, manuals do give us, uh, for the most part, some really great information. But uh, are there are there American camera companies? Are there are pretty much every camera company that exists is in a a, a a country whose native language is in English? Have you ever in your life, Brandon, read a manual that was terribly translated from another language? Uh, <laughs> buying Chinese products, yes, but I know where you're going with this. For all intent and purposes, with, with serious purchases and technically advanced uh, items, no. But but here's the thing. Uh, I find that manuals are written by technical people. Even if it's translated well from another language, it's still written by a technical person. But I know so many photographers who are not technical people. They're artistic people and they're visual learners, which is why we did an entire episode on YouTube, the whole photography YouTube world, because not all of us learn that way. I prefer to learn, uh, even though I am a technical person, probably a little bit more technical than you on the, uh, the, the, the still side because I get geeky about it. I still prefer to learn visually. Like when I, when I, I like I like looking at YouTube channels. Like like I said, Fronos Photo uh, taught me how to use my Canon EOS R, and I just watched him go through the menus, and I was like, cool, I know how to use my EOS R. You know, it was uh, three or four years ago. That's kind of the extent that I do as well. I won't read the manual, but I like having someone kind of neutrally go through the menus so that I can go, oh, that's something I didn't know was there. I can use that creatively now. I don't have to like you know like I can test that idea. That can test that function. I also find that situational, you know, like situationally dependent stuff is not in a manual. So I'll see somebody, you know, ask a question in a forum, like in Facebook or whatever, like, Hey, one of my cameras in such and such situation, how do I do this? And then inevitably that, that jackass comes in and is like, read the fucking manual. It's like, but the question that they're asking, the answer is not in the manual because it's situational dependent. All the manual does is when you push this button, this happens. When you push that button, that happens. It's incredibly like literal, you know? And so I don't, I, I, I reject that you have to, like, like I do recommend you sit down and read your manual at some point, but it's not going to answer every question for you. And so that's why we have Facebook groups. That's why we have YouTube. And so if you're that person who you know, gives the people advice of, oh yeah, just rely on the manual only, you suck. But uh, you're also half right because they should read the manual. So that's, that's kind of a, a middle, middle ground there. Um, another one I want to talk about. Uh, people will say your photography degree will get you nowhere. Oh, my photography degree got me somewhere. I, I'm, I'm doing okay with that. And it actually, uh, it was my minor, but, uh, and my major too, just in general, like getting a degree now, don't, don't confuse that. I'm saying that you have to go to school and study to become a good photographer. That's not what I'm saying, but if somebody 
tries to discourage you from getting a photography degree and it's your passion, tell them to fuck off. Um, because there are things that YouTube hasn't taught me. And uh, there are things that that the manuals haven't taught me that my degree did teach me. Um, You know, you you can kind of find uh, videos on the F-16 rule or the Sunny 16 rule, but I learned that about that in in college. And I I find that there are so many people who shoot film now, you know, a resurgence of film photographers. And when when I talk to these people, a lot of these people, I'm they're all like, oh, you know, metering is, is, you know, they'll they'll use these older cameras and they'll be like, oh, metering is an issue. And I'm like, well, just use the Sunny 16 rule. And they're like, what's that? Like, you don't know what the F-16 rule is. And so I, I but I learned that technically in, you know, in college. And so there are things that there are, there is, that's just one example, but there, there's knowledge that I have picked up, um, over the years from my degree that I apply to, you know, what I do now. And, 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 you know, don't, if, if, if that's your passion, pursue it. That's just, that's, that's my point. Yeah. It's, I kind of agree. I kind of disagree. Well, I mean, you know, you put it pretty well. It's just like, you know, like if someone's going to discourage you from getting a degree, you know, that's on them. Cause like everyone's a different photographer. Like there are people who want to do photography as a means of business. Like they're more interested in the business side of things. I think Vanessa joy, uh, it might've been Vanessa joy who said that she's extremely interested in the, in the business side of things because it is exciting in and of itself. It's monopoly. You know, it's a game. It's, it, it surely is a game and you are ultimately the winner of that game pretty much no matter what you do. So it's fantastic. Um, but that being said, um, there is a lot of people do go and get degrees because they want to be a photographer. They want to, you know, invigorate that, that creative side of themselves and they don't have the faculty or the, the wherewithal at that time to say, or think like, Oh, you know, I could just learn all this on YouTube or like, I just need to go out and shoot. Like no one's telling them that. So they go and get the degree and then that creativity is hammered out of them and they don't even want to do photography anymore because they're stuck on rule of thirds when, you know, they might innately know how to take a great photo and then, um, you know, rule of thirds is more of a back background thought. Yeah. And it's something also I want to touch up on, on that subject. So we talked about, you know, in an episode, you can go learn stuff for free on YouTube. We talked about, you can go get a degree and, and, and learn another place. I want to, I want to talk about where you could learn. Cause I hear people go, I also hear people say, Oh, you can just go learn everything on YouTube. I think that's bullshit. So as Vanessa Joyce said, the best education she got was learning under somebody like, you know, an apprenticeship to having somebody take you under the wing. That is absolutely true. And then another thing, don't be afraid to pay to learn things. So, uh, there's a, and I'm not plugging this because they don't sponsor the pod, but I, I paid like, I went and it was like a hundred, $200 for a creative live account. Uh, creative live is a really cool, like masterclass type online thing. And, uh, Lindsay Adler, if you're not familiar with her, she's one of the the best, in my opinion, uh, studio photography uh, teachers. We plugged her in our YouTube episode. She's fantastic uh, at communication and showing how to do studio lighting. And one of the best compliments I get on my work, my studio work is, wow, you really know light, Kevin. It's like, yeah, well, a lot of the stuff I learned from her and I learned from her creative live classes. I bought I bought a creative live count for one year just to basically learn her classes because it's made me I mean, the, my return on investment has been great. I made a lot of that money back. Well, I more than made that money back, uh, booking, you know, getting bookings on uh, studio sessions. So uh, it's paid for itself like, you know, 20, 30 times over, right? So uh, that that's something you should check into is like, don't be afraid to pay for good classes if you know that the person has a good reputation uh, because they don't share everything on YouTube. 
you know, they save that because they need to make money. And, and so, you know, you can learn a lot of the stuff that's in those classes on YouTube, but it's all scattered and you got to kind of like look for it. And even if you do learn a specific thing, you may not learn how to tie it all together. And that's what you pay for in a formal education. That's what you pay for, or if you do an apprenticeship, at least you pay for it with your time. Or, you know, those creative life classes is you learn how to put it all together. We're learning one skill is fine, but learning how to tie your skills together is what differentiates you from other people. Hey, this is Vanessa Joy, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. You know what I always find interesting is because I'm someone who's constantly concerned with being technically correct. There's a part of me that wants to be technically correct in the way I shoot, and then there's another part of me that wants to leave an emotional impact on someone. And so oftentimes, um, I have an argument in my head. I'm just like, okay, is a hair light really is is like the energy I'm going to spend on a hair light worth more than the energy I'd spend on taking a cool shot because there's a technically accurate photo. And like, I feel like the only people who know a photo is technically accurate and well lit are just other people who, you know, take technically accurate and well lit photos. If you want to separate your subject from the background, then a hair light makes it a cool shot. But, does, if, it, but, but, that, but if that's not that important, fuck it, the hair light. It does. Well, no, that's, that's, that's the thing is because I want, I want both. I want to have my cake and eat it too. But like I'm looking at my trajectory and what I want to do. And I like taking creative photos. I like doing creative concepts, you know? And then I look at, I look at campaigns for big fashion brands and I look at the lighting there. I look at like the, I look at the techniques and maybe like it's, it's like 50, 50, like 50% of these brands have like really extremely well lit photos. They're technical. Most of them are shit. Well, it's not. No, I'm saying most of them are uh, from a technical standpoint. Most of them are shit. It's blurry. The, the, the colors are weird. The, the white balance is weird. The, the, the lighting would be considered not technically great. Like creative campaign. Yeah. It's a creative campaign. So it's, it's kind of funny. Like everything that they teach you, in school <laughs> a lot of times right. like but even like uh you know i have a pet peeve i don't like to chop people's feet off anytime i open up a magazine i see a Dwar ad or a louis vuitton ad the fucking feet are chopped off halfway and right not, i'm like they don't intentionally chop them off at the limb I'm like what the fuck and this person so, this person has like a fucking three million dollar budget for this campaign i'm so over here fucking doing a podcast exactly so it makes <laughs> it makes you think like like how important is this and i've always had that question Um, because the people I admire, the photographers I admire, they learn how to, what they do is they create like an orderly chaos is they have like well-directed, uh, chaos where things are interesting. There's motion. Um, there's a lot of emotion and there's a, like a really high impact in their photography and yet it's not technically accurate. And then I look at a guy who's taking the technically accurate photos. I can tell that he spent a good amount of time just color grading. He's balanced everything. You know, he's just really taken the time to curate this immaculate, perfect photo. And I, I love like there's a perfectionist side of me where it's just like, I like the technically accurateness of the photo more than what the photo is even saying to me. You know, like I just enjoy that. So it's me too. So it's like, I don't know, like it, it depends on where you're going. You know what I mean? If you want to be the studio photographer, uh, go for it. But like at the same time, I know that Helmut Newton was just using massive beauty dishes, um, like on location and was just, you know, he was just blasting, you know, he was worried more about the composition than, than the technicalities of the thing. That's all they had back then were beauty dishes. That's yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Cause like uh, hard lighting is like, that's all they had back in the day was hard lighting. Which, which is funny because I'm drawn to it. And it's, it's just more primitive and easier to shoot. Primitive. That's a good word to describe it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an early day. They're still figuring out how to do stills photography the way they wanted to uh, with with flash. But um, here's 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 one that I I, I see a lot, which is and and this is like terrible, terrible advice. You'll see somebody, and sometimes it's somebody saying, oh, you can do this, and sometimes it's somebody convincing themselves that they can do this, and it's that person who they're like, yeah, I want to like get into wedding photography. My buddy's having a wedding out in his backyard. It's a pretty small event, so I, I think I can take this job by myself. Yeah, I've never done it, but I think I can take this job by myself. And the one thing I always like caution people who get into wedding photography is they, they equate size with difficulty. And I think that that is you're playing with fire because if you have 10,000 people at, in a crowd at a wedding or you have 10 people in a crowd at a wedding, do they still exchange vows? Yes. Do they still have a first kiss? Yes. Do they walk down the aisle still usually? Yes. Like it's like the, the actual schedule of what happens in a wedding. It may go a little faster because there's less people there, but in general, it's the same fucking ceremony. And so people go, well, because this is a smaller wedding, it's not that big of a deal, but what you're, what, what you're, you're wrong about that because do you think that the bride and the groom, uh, it's a less of a, it's a less of a big deal to them because there's less people there. Like maybe the, the, them getting married, it's supposedly the most important day of your life outside of maybe your kids being born, that that's less important to them than like when a celebrity gets married and there's a shitload of people that show up. Cause I would argue that fuck now that's not less important to them. It may even be more important to them than to a celebrity, because even though they're throwing a small wedding, like financially, it might be like a really big burden on them. And so I, I, I think that people get fall into this trap where they go, well, it's just a small wedding. So I'll shoot it. It's like, if you miss important things that happen, you will like, they will take a look at this, at these pictures, at least the bride will probably once a week for several years and they're either going to remember it as beautiful captures of the best day of their life up to that point, or the photographer, the photographer was terrible and they fucked this up and they fucked that up. And they were learning how to shoot wedding photography. The reason, and, and, and I think Vanessa Joy harped on this is, you know, go learn under somebody else because if you have more than one photographer there and a photographer fucks up and makes a bunch of mistakes, there's another photographer there. They have more pictures that they can fall on, fall back on for redundancy. And you know, if you're listening to this and you hear the term second shooter, at a wedding, that doesn't mean that the pictures are lesser. A second shooter is of equal quality to the primary shooter. The second shooter is redundancy, alternate angles and all that, but they need to be done at the same standard as the primary photographer. Okay. And so going in there and just shooting your buddy's wedding in a backyard, you are asking for it. And inevitably these people are always the ones who end up in the forum. Like what, what, what kind of lens should I use to shoot my buddy's wedding? And it's like, bro, you're not even like you're not even like thinking correctly. Like you need to sit down, have a scheduled meeting with the bride and the groom, talk to them about the shots that they want. What is important to you? Who's that guy playing the guitar over there? Because I don't know your family. Oh, the guy playing guitar as I walk down the aisle is my father-in-law. Well, that's probably somebody you want to get a fucking picture of. Are there two people that if I ask them to get in a picture together, they're going to start, you know, punching each other. Like this is all stuff you should do as a wedding photographer. So my point being is if you go, I want to get into wedding photography, I'll just find a small ceremony first mistake there is you, you judged it by size and thought maybe it was less important. Cause that's, that's basically what you're implying is that, well, this isn't that big of a deal. The consequences aren't going to be too bad because it's a smaller wedding and it's somebody I know. And the fact that it's somebody, you know, is problematic because if you fuck up the wedding of somebody, you know, you might, and you may end the friendship that day 
or they will give you shit about it every single time you see them for the rest of the time that you shall be friends, right? So it's just people don't use common sense when they approach that situation. If you want to learn to shoot wedding photography, go study under somebody else, go learn to be a second shooter. And then when you get to the point where you can run the show, because that's really the only difference between a first shooter and a second shooter. They're both of equal talent. This is the first shooter runs the fucking show. They run the whole wedding. They schedule the second shooter. They do all that. And that's why they make more money. But the second shooter has to be of equal. I mean, should be of equal quality to the first shooter. So anyway, that's something that, that like mistakes, bad advice is, Oh yeah, you can go shoot somebody's wedding. It's not a big deal. It's yeah. just a little backyard wedding, like bullshit. Do not fall into that trap because yeah. you are playing with fire. And at the very least, at the very least, like I, I agree with everything Kevin's saying, but I think a lot, you know, there, there is an aspect of it that depends on the circumstance. If your buddy's asking you to shoot the wedding and you're not a wedding photographer, uh, the least you need to be doing is just being honest. Just sit down. You know, those are my capabilities. You know, it's the set expectations. If your buddy is fine with a, just a candid kind of, you know, wedding style, you know, sure, go for it. You know, not a big deal. But if, if like, this is a thing where you're presenting yourself as the wedding photographer and you're not, then, you know, that's, that's on you. You need to be honest. Absolutely. Coming up. We're going to talk about some other bad advice we've been given. This is Katrina Brown, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Uh, one of the pieces of bad advice that I see see people give, and it's painting with a broad brush, is you have to shoot in RAW. Now, for professional projects, I would argue that you probably should shoot in RAW. But, you know, if you're taking your family out on vacation and you're at Disney World, do you really need to shoot those shots in RAW? Uh, if you're a street photographer and maybe you're not selling prints or maybe your whole point of your existence is that you want to emulate the, you know, the look of film, right? It's like, well, if you want to emulate film photography without shooting film photography, live with your decisions and shoot in JPEG. And I, I, I find all too often now I will, I will say if you have a challenging lighting scene, you, you may want to shoot in raw. Like if it's a situation where you have crazy dynamics, dynamic range situations and you want to maintain as much information as possible. Like you're shooting in an alleyway and then the sky's kind of blown out. Okay. I could see shoot raw there because you may make the wrong decision in JPEG and you might be, I might not be able to recover what you need, but I reject that you should always shoot in raw. I think there are absolutely legitimate situations out there where you can shoot in JPEG and be perfectly fine because if you are actually getting better at photography, shouldn't you be able to get it right at the camera? What do you think? That's that's completely true. Um, it's funny. I was just telling Kevin uh, like bad advice, and you know, I I come from such an abstract approach to photography that I don't think of you know like I don't think of advice as like good or bad. I just think of it as just like hmm maybe you know in the different situations, but. Uh, definitely. Kevin's definitely giving me stuff to think about here. And the raw aspect is I totally, I totally agree. Um, sometimes I'll find myself carrying a camera around and I'll be shooting raw when I know I'm just taking photos of my brothers or, or just, you know, doing street photography or, or, you know, just taking photos just because I enjoy taking photos. It's nothing serious. And I find that, okay, I've got a really, really like uncompressed flat image that I need to edit to bring out like, and I don't want to do that. You know, it, sure, I can throw an S curve on a photo and make it look better when it's shot in JPEG, but like you don't need to shoot raw if you're capturing an image where 
it needs to be really edited. If you're capturing something where it's more of the impression of the subject itself, just shoot it in JPEG. You don't need to shoot street photography in RAW. You don't need to shoot your family in RAW. You don't need to shoot anything crazy in RAW. If you're one of the guys that is just like, I need data, I need I need oversampling, I need all this stuff, you know, fair enough, fair enough. You want to edit photos, fair enough. But, but really, if you're just capturing a scene, your camera has more than enough technology to make it look great right out. And on that subject... Another thing, uh, bad advice. Oh, just fix it in Photoshop. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. That You're creating a shit culture there because what you're doing is you think about how much time you spend editing. If you taught yourself as a photographer to get things more correct at the camera, then I, I, I would argue that uh, you could save shitloads of time. And, you know, as I mentioned on this pod, a lot of times the, the, the compliment people give me the most is that my uh, – my lighting is, 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 you know, good. They like my lighting. I've actually had people like ask me what kind of, like, I don't want to say that they accuse me of like making a photo look too perfect. But my point being is you can be so, so good with lighting at the source that you may not have to do a retouch. They, they're, they're like, wow, you, you must've spent hours retouching this or whatever. Right. And it's like, no, I didn't spend hours retouching this. I used the correct modifier on the skin that saved me a shitload of retouching time because I got it right at the camera. And so, um, you know, uh, so anyway, like that's, that's my point is if you get it right at the camera, you know, p- people will give you compliments thinking that you spent hours and hours and hours working on something and you didn't, you may have spent years and years and years trying to figure out how to get it right at the camera. But when you learn that you got it right in like one, one of a second or one, two hundredth of a second, because that's what getting right, get, getting it right at the camera means is that you solved the problem and you took out a shitload of work in the time it took for your shutter to close. That is getting it right at the camera, you know, and then and just you know creating a mindset that I'm just going to shoot and not give a shit, and I'll figure figure it out in post. I can't imagine cumulatively of how much of your life you waste taking that approach. Yeah. Hey, I got a question for you. What bar parabolic soft light? What is your most used soft light modifier? Like uh, you know, recently, what have you been using? Uh, I just <laughs> dropped my phone. Um, I would say that I, I typically will just use a softbox. Like, uh, how, usually, how usually big? a 60, it, it depends. Okay. So if it's more of a, a high key, you know, commercial look, I'll use uh, a 60 inch or a 70 inch somewhere in there. Something that wraps a lot of just, light around the subject. Just a cloud of light. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a very simple and that's, that's a fun, another funny thing. And I've talked about it in the past is that people think I'm like this master of light. And they think I use a lot of lights and I'm, I usually use a modifier, maybe a second, but a lot of times it's just a bounce. I use a, I just use a fill and I'm using one or two lights and people love the, the simple look and I love the simple look and it's, it's compatible with the way I, way I roll. Yeah. In fact, this is a, this is a good segue. I just, a lot of people will tell you that you need the specific modifier to get the specific shape of light. And they'll, they'll tell you that you need to spend more money than you actually do. And right now I'm looking at behind us, I think we have a 60 inch newer softbox that uh, was probably $50 and it is, I use it for almost everything. It is, it is so versatile. It can, it can easily uh, capture two to three people. I usually use it for one person. It wraps around, it highlights the backdrop really well. And, you know, even though you will get a little bit of vignetting or darkness on one side of the backdrop, you can easily fill that with a bounce or just a second light. It's, 
it's amazing. You don't need to spend extra money. Yeah, outside of, uh, I mean, there are some really expensive parabolic reflectors out there where you can see a little bit of a difference. But in general, when it comes to saw boxes, it's diffused light. All you're, all you're doing is you're emulating indirect light coming through a window. How well did you do that? And to Brandon's point, a $50 softbox versus like a $600 pro photo softbox, nobody can tell the difference. If, if it's the same size, the same depth, and the same amount of diffusers, nobody can tell the difference. And, you know, people can try to sell you on it or whatever. Now, the, the reason why you pay more for the pro photo softbox is if you're doing like location shooting, usually it's, 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 it's better quality than something like a newer, but we're not talking like three times the quality. It's or actually in this case, it'd be like six times, six times the quality in this, but it is six times the price. And, and so that, you know, that's just shop smart on that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I spend uh, a lot of money on cameras and lights, but I spend a lot less money on modifiers because I find that did it, you know, I just asked myself, did it make it soft? Yes. Do I like the quality of light? Yes. Okay. Then the objective has been achieved. I don't look at the price tag. I look at the result. And so uh, I don't own outside of my parabolic reflector. I really don't own a lot of modifiers that I would consider pricey. Uh, all my modifiers are very budget and I've used expensive premium modifiers and you know, the quality difference of the materials. Yes, I can feel it. Uh, you know, brown color modifiers that are almost $3,000. Are they a perfect parabola parabola? Yeah, they are. Uh, it just means that they're a little bit more efficient in how they, th how they project light. The amount of light that my parabolic modifier throws in my studio is way more than I'll ever need. The specular highlights look beautiful. The catch light looks beautiful. So I'm like, okay, well that's, that's, that's my standard. I'm good. So Going to specular highlights real quick. Is that the sort of like reflective effect that it it's, gives? It's the it's... really hardcore brightest part highlights. Yeah. Okay. Because That's what specular yeah. highlights are. And, and sometimes, so uh, there's a, there's uh, I did a recent shoot with a model with super dark skin and Ooh. the specular highlights were what made the picture. Uh, I'll, I'll share it. That's, I noticed I'll, that I'll, I'll share it. I'll share it in the Victoria. Yeah. 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 There's this model Victoria. I'll share the, the link. So when you feel the following along, here's the thing, the with, specular with highlights, that, the with shine that quality of light is I saw that post on Instagram and I knew that you used the cheetah box, like the, the shape of the light on that model was done so well. I was just like, mm, Kevin broke out the cheetah for this one. Uh, yeah, yeah. By the way, I had lunch with Cheetah Stand uh, the other day, and they're they're. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give them a pitch, even though they don't sponsor this pod. Something I want to talk to you all about uh, in forums. There's the Godox versus Flashpoint debate, and they say, "Oh, buy Flashpoint through Adorama because you got the warranty with Adorama." I just want to say that Cheetah Stand now sells Godox, and they are also a Godox service center based in the central part of the United States in Dallas. So. You can buy Godox now, and you can get the warranty serviced through Cheetah Stand out in Dallas. Just a free plug for them. Uh, they did buy me. I will, I will disclose it. I, they did buy me some miso ramen uh, when we sat down and chatted. So uh, if you consider that sponsorship and consider me biased because I had some miso for lunch, then okay. But uh, great, great, great group of dudes. And I just wanted to say that like the the, the reputation for Godox was always that no you can't get Godox in the states because if anything goes wrong you got to send it off to China that's no longer the case you can go through Cheetah Stand so just want to get that out of the way hi this is Ethan Tran and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast let's talk about uh you shouldn't shoot flash because it looks fake 
Ooh, okay. Now, to preface this, Kevin and I have spent a lot of time shitting on guys who use Flash during sunsets. As like a <laughs> I, I don't shit on people for using Flash on sunsets. I shit on people who, A, don't know how to use corrective gels to make the light look like sunset light. And I shit on people who use soft light at sunset because the sun is fucking hard. That is the majority of people shooting at sunset. Let's let's be brutally honest. That's the majority. Which, which is not how I typically shoot at sunset. I, I have recently put a couple of soft light sunset pictures up, but in general, I use hard light because that's the goddamn sun. Go on. Uh, if I'm ever using flash outdoors, you better believe I'm using a wide angle lens and it's for a streetwear style shoot. I don't think I'll ever try to compete with the sun for a beautiful, harsh light. So uh, yeah, that being said, people using flash outdoors, uh, I think it's a look. Uh, personally, I find it distasteful, but I think that's definitely a look. Well, I think that, the reason why it looks fake is because people make the flash too strong and they use the wrong modifier. I think it's a combination of both. So they tend to go one stop over. I don't want to say overexposed. They go one. Cause I'm not saying that the skin is blown out, but what they're doing is they're, they're, they're overexposing the flash one stop over of what it needs to be in order to achieve a natural look. So my point being is if, if I have a, a subject in front of me and they're backlit by the sun, that's one light source. And then I take a picture of them and I see a silhouette. Okay, well, that's, not, I mean, unless I'm going for a silhouette, that's not the look I want. So I fill them in. And if I use an OCF gel, an OCF orange gel that emulates sunlight, it just looks like they're getting more sunlight on them. The reason why people don't like the look of flash is one, they tend to take that one stop too far. And two, they don't use corrective gels. And so you'll see daylight, 5,600 Kelvin, hit their front face, and then you've got really warm light coming over their shoulder. You have two different types of light. It's no different than if you take somebody next to a window and then you turn on a fluorescent light. You have two different types of white balances competing with one another. And your job as a photographer is to try to balance those two white balances so they look correct. And if you don't use corrective gels, you have a 5600 Kelvin daylight white balance hitting them in the front. And then you have sunset hitting them in the back and that doesn't look natural. And that's part of what contributes to that whole attitude of, I don't like the look of flash. And the reason why you don't like the look of flash is because most photographers don't use corrective gels. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a debate on whether it looks fake or not. I think it's a debate on whether you can get away with the harmony of colors. Um, because when you, when you see a commercial or you see even like a high photo or high fashion photography thing where they're, they f they're flashing someone at sunset and it's the correct color and the grading's like on point, it doesn't look natural. You can just get away with it. They've harmonized it really well. And so it is a look in and of itself. Um, it's just, you're either terrible at the look or you know how to do it. Yeah. Although there are some people out there who are considered flash masters. And when I look at their work, I'm like, yeah, it looks fake as fuck. So I'm not going to name names, but there you are. No, I'm not coming up. We're going to talk about our most embarrassing photography moments. This is Jason Berkman and you're listening to the F 11 photography podcast. Oh yeah. I've got one right here. When I was first starting out, I had an SD card with no backup. I had an SD card five shots into the photo shoot after hiking about 15 minutes uh, into the wilderness with a model at sunset uh, SD card corrupted on me. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't. Oh man. Yeah. That, that's a rough one. Uh, yeah. And so thank, thank goodness I was like just starting out. So how did I remedy this situation? How does one, how do you get yourself out of this pickle? Well, I'll tell you right now, 
Um, if you're someone like me who, uh, who at that time did not want to confront the said model about the situation and wanted to give them that experience of being beautiful in the sunset, um, this is what I did. While my camera could not save any of the photos, the shutter could still go off. And so I went through the entire shoot and I just continued taking photos, shutter clicking, and just saying, wow, this is great. Like, okay, Ooh. move your elbow here, okay? <laughs> and so for the next, the next 45 minutes till the sunset, I was just like, all right, sick, 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 sick. And then I blocked her. <laughs> oh my God, dude. <laughs> wow. That was, that was like six years ago. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's rough. Yeah. Wow, that was a dick move. It was a dick move, but I just like, there weren't any options at the time that seemed more reasonable than blocking oh, this person. That your young, your young early 20s brain had not fully developed to the point where it's like, I'm going to offer a free reshoot. Yeah, no, I had nothing but condiments and beer in my fridge at the time. So as you can imagine, like like being an honest and like morally direct person was not in the cards. Back in the days when you buy a pizza and make it last three days as your food. Yeah. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's, that's, a, that's a good one. Um, I have a similar one, not as embarrassing as yours. I've, I mean, I've forgotten like my, I always forget one thing at every shoot and usually it's not crucial. It's something I can live with. It's like, Oh, I forgot a ND filter or something like that. I forgot my batteries once I came all the way down here to the studio to shoot Malika who we had in studio. Uh, and you should go check out that interview that we did, but I did a shoot with her and I got everything set up. I'm like, all right, it's time to go. And I like reach for my batteries. I'm like, I don't have my batteries fuck. And I had to like meet my wife halfway between our house and here and get batteries. So she like is just sitting there chilling in the studio, like looking at, uh, you know, looking, looking at, uh, her, her phone probably. And, uh, but we did, we did actually get some good, uh, good shots. As a matter of fact, Tyler Shields gave me a shout out on that shoot. So, you know, it all's well and ends well. Um, so that was an embarrassing one. Uh, something else, uh, that I just, something stupid that I do, to this day, other than not taking the, the lens cap off, which I, I, I don't know why it's always that first shot, but, uh, I, you know, every model, it seems like owns a cat and they like to wear black and, or they own a dog that sheds and they like to wear black. And I never have a lint roller with me and neither do mm. they. And it's like, man, how many, like how much time cumulatively in my life have I spent taking fucking cat hair off of like black yoga pants or a black top. And it's just like, you know, if Kevin, if you just put a fucking lint roller in your bag instead of like an extra lens, and that's usually of course, like, Oh, I got to take an extra lens with me. And I don't, but I do. And I need to, I need to stop doing that. I, and to this day, I still can't get that right. And it's like, man, I could save so much time by just bringing a lint roller with me, or at least like emailing the model beforehand or texting her and be like, could you please bring a lint roller? Cause I, I and it's I've worked with these models more than once. I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot. She she always has fucking pet hair on her clothes, and I'm like you know, you, you gotta learn, Kevin. Ask mm. them to bring a fucking lint roller. Mm. It's it's when people show up with like creased clothes that they threw in their car for me. I'm just like, are you? <laughs> oh, that happens to me all the time. Oh my god, it drives I, I, me nuts. It's I, like I, we have a steamer here at the studio. I was like, hey, you should probably use a steamer real quick. But you know, after you would think you learn your lesson after the fifteenth photo in a row where you're cleaning cat hair off their butt. It's like, yeah, I, I, sh I should probably say something, but then you you forget because you get your bandwidth, your mental bandwidth gets all, all sucked in on other things during the shoot. And something I, yeah, something I do to this day on shoots is kind of like embarrassing is I'll get like into the flow state. And like, I, for some reason I've just gotten used to like not having silence during the shoot. Like I always have to be talking and like just filling the space. And so like, so it'll, it'll go from like constructive talking 
sometimes, which Kevin and I have talked about a lot, to like if, if the shoot's going well, is I'll just start like naming off random like random facts I know or just like making random metaphors or, or similes. Like like say I'm there was once a bread li- bread line in uh, you know the former <laughs> Yugoslavia where people stood there for six miles to get bread in the former Soviet Union. I'm yeah. sorry, I'm, I'm making fun of Brandon. It's it's true. No, it's true. And so like I'll, I'll be shooting a model and like things will be going well. I'm like wow, this is great. This is great. And I'll like vocalize that. And then like under my breath, I'll say something like, "Yes, we're." We are, we are sieging Stalingrad currently. It's uh, the winter of 44, and uh, oh my gosh. Like, Americans are on one side of Berlin, and we're on the yeah. other. Who's going to take the glory? This is going great. Yeah, it's like we're, we're bootleggers in 33. No one can stop us. Keep going. And like, and like no one knows what I'm talking about. Like, I'm just, I'm just rattling off shit that I, I get from like history documentaries because it, like, it makes me feel good. Like, sometimes I'll put on a Churchill voice. And like, you know, like um, when, when I shot with a, a model we both shot with, Alyssa, like things were going well. And I was, you know, I was just like, as I was taking these shots on a series that we like, we hit our stride. I was just like, yes, we will fight in the beaches. We will fight in the streets and in the fields and on the hills and in the air. And she's like, you're fucking weird. Everyone was, dude. There's and then like, she moved away to Portland. There was like four people in that, <laughs> that shoot. They were just like looking at me like, what is this guy doing? And like, I don't know. Like, it just, it, it, it makes sense in the time, in the moment. And then like when I'm, when I leave, I'm just like, did I really just do that? Like. It is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Kevin's smiling. Glad Brandon never takes my pictures. I'd, I'd start making fun of him uh, when he talks about the former Soviet Union. So uh, one thing, one mistake I've made early on is, I, you know, if I'm coordinating wardrobe stuff with a model, you know, they'll show me all their looks, and there'll be one look that I'll be more excited about than the other looks. And and so uh, I'll I'll start off with the best look. I think that's a mistake. I think you should establish rapport. You should get into a groove with the model. And then as you feel like you've hit your stride, that's when you go, hey, you know that look that we both got super excited about, the one that you really want to be shot in? Now let's go to that look. That's definitely one. I agree with that. I wholeheartedly, like, usually, like, okay, I go back and forth. Sometimes I'm just like, okay, like, it's my first time shooting the model. Like, I want to shoot what they're most confident in to, like, kind of grease the gears. And, like, I'm thinking, okay, by the end of this look, like, we'll get some, like, really killer shots. And then yeah. other times it's like straight up like, okay, we just need to shoot the shit stuff that I'm probably not even going to edit. And they're not even like fully comfortable with the outfit, but we just need to build, uh, like you said, that rapport in the shoot. Yeah. Now there are some exceptions to that. There are some models that I know that they hit their first 10 looks and that their, their 10 best pictures are usually the first 10 pictures I take. And then from there it goes downhill. I don't want to say it goes downhill. Like it's bad, but like they just don't give me as good of stuff. Like they just go out there with their energy. They psych themselves up. I learned those models and there's only a handful of them that I shoot with. And I go, okay, we'll start with your best look first, but in general, don't start with your best foot forward. So I agree with that. Now I'm going to tell my embarrassing story because you told your embarrassing story. So when I graduated college with my photography degree that I told you earlier in this, uh, in this uh, episode that you should uh, be proud of and go work with and all that, I took a shit job, uh, with a, a guy who it was, a, it was first and foremost. I mean, if you want to shoot yourself, high school senior portraits, uh, not just the freestyle stuff, but the yearbook stuff. And then also the sports uh, events. I, we did all of them. We were a full stop shop and I got hired for that. And my, my, the owner of the company, he had cancer and you know, there's two types of people out there who, who get cancer. There are people who like say, I'm going to fight this. And you know, maybe they overcome it. Maybe they, maybe they don't, but they have a positive outlook. And then there's other people who are like, I'm cursed. My life sucks. Cause I have this and I'm going to take it on. I'm going to take it out on everybody around me. And 
you know, this is the early 2000s. And so, like, <laughs> if you were a man in the early 2000s, men, men weren't allowed to talk about their feelings. You know, like, like you couldn't be verbally abused by a, a, a boss because, you know, guys guys don't get that. Only women get that. You know, it was, we lived in a weird time back then. But anyway, my boss was verbally abusive. Absolute piece of shit human being. I'm guessing he's no longer with us. I, I didn't find out. But, you know, it, it was everybody else's fault that he had cancer, which, you know, I'm, I'm an empathetic human being. That's terrible. But you shouldn't be a piece of shit to other people. And that's 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 the route he decided to take. So I had that mentality. And anybody who's ever, like, had a job where, oh, man, I got to go into work and you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach. First and foremost, that feeling in the pit of your stomach is telling you leave your fucking job and go find another job because it's not mentally – uh, beneficial for you to stay at that job. That's what that means. That's, that's, that's your gut. That's literally your gut telling you get the fuck out of here. I didn't know that. Cause I was like, you know, 22 or whatever at the time, maybe 20, yeah, I was 22. And so I didn't know what that feeling was. I just knew I, it made me uncomfortable. So I, and I would imagine it actually like ate up some of my mental bandwidth and contributed to the mistakes I made, like the one I'm about to talk about right now. So, uh, I was in Austin and there's a city that's about 40 miles outside of Austin. And I got, uh, asked, uh, you know, given the, given the assignment, Hey, go shoot, uh, this high school out in this rural part of Texas's, uh, high school, uh, soccer team. They're having a soccer game. And this is back when I shot on film. As a matter of fact, it's the last time I ever shot on a Nikon. I don't even remember what the camera was, but it was some Nikon camera. And I, I was like, all right, cool. So I took all my stuff. I got in my Ford, Ford Ranger, my 1994 Ford Ranger. And I drove out to, the uh, high school to shoot. And I'm, you know, all right, I'm gonna get all my stuff out and I'm looking and grabbing everything. I'm like, where's my camera? I, I completely forgot my fucking camera. It's the stupidest thing I've ever, stupidest thing I've ever done as a professional adult. Like I, like, what are you? I'm a photographer. What's your main tool? A camera. Cool. Did you show up at our high school to take pictures? Yeah. Did you remember your camera? No, no. (laughs) Like, like how fucking stupid can you be? To forget your fucking camera when you're a fucking photographer. It's like, so what are you? I'm a pilot. Did you bring your airplane? Oh, I fucking forgot it. It's the tool I use to get to, to, to do my job. I totally forgot my airplane. I went down the taxiway without my airplane and it was time to take off. And I was like, fuck, where's my airplane? That's pretty much what happened to me with my camera. I totally forgot my camera. And, you know, I told you about the boss who was verbally abusive. And of course, my whole drive home, like, God, he's going to fucking he's going to go off on me. And sure enough, he did. And, um, I, I, I quit, uh, shortly after that and moved up to Dallas because the job prospect prospect market in Austin at the time was just shit. But, uh, I wanted to tell that story because I'm sure some of you listening to this episode are going to do something really stupid and you're going to think back and go, wow. I mean, I did something pretty stupid, but I didn't do something as stupid as Kevin. That does it for today's episode. We thank each and every one of you for listening. And remember, you can find us at f11pod.com or with the handle f11pod. And also, we are going to be launching our YouTube channel. I don't know when, uh, but we're going to be doing it in the near future. And so, you know, subscribe to us on YouTube, just f11pod as well. And I don't know when we're going to launch it, but at least if you have that subscription, you'll know when we launch it. So when we do cool things like have visual references, you'll be able to follow along. And until next time, kids, chase light and not algorithms.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.